God's primary work is to entrust us with power. And what I want to say is, it is God's design, it is God's desire, and it's God's intention for us to become men of power. The reason why we go build things is we were meant to, okay? It's just gone a little sideways. Welcome to Become Good Soil. I'm your host, Morgan Snyder, a podcast for men choosing a decade of excavation. The podcast is a brand new initiative from our team here at Ransom Heart, specifically focused for young men in young marriages, with young kids, in young careers, and men that are really at the beginning of the king stage of their life. Become Good Soil was birthed as an invitation to young men to walk with God, to become sons, to be father, and to dedicate an entire decade to a holy paradox, to a lifestyle that's a response to the question that what if the primary motive for us as young men and young kings wasn't to go build a kingdom, but it was to let God build us as men, to make us wholehearted, and for us to become the men that God can entrust with his power. And so this is the first episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. And in praying about this and thinking through the best way to launch it, it actually might be helpful as a framework to actually go into the Become Good Soil intensive we do here in Colorado and to grab a piece of that teaching that really helps you taste and feel the heart of the message behind Good Soil. Welcome on behalf of Ransom Heart, on behalf of our team and our facilitators in Bear Trap. It is so good to be here with you guys. It really is. I want to pray. Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this for us, for your sons, for, for bringing us from the corners of the world and from this nation, from so many different states, from other countries, from stories and and mess, and adventure, and questions, and drawing us all together to share these holy days set apart for you to mature us, heal us, and bring us joy, bring us your breath. Thank you for doing this. We receive you. We begin this weekend by simply coming to you with our bodies, our souls, and our spirit, our heart, our mind, and our will. We come to you to be united with you, to unite our heart with your heart, to agree with who you are, and to agree with what you are doing. You know us, and you meet us where we are, and we choose to risk accepting your acceptance of us. Right here, right now, this evening, on this mountain, We accept your acceptance of us. We ask for your anointing to come down into each and every one of us this weekend. Your favor. We declare that we are the sons of God and you are our Father. So we ask for the Father's heart to reign and rule over this campus, over every inch of this property. And we stand in your authority against every thief, every spirit of distraction, every spirit of disqualification or diminishment, every half-hearted spirit that would cause us to be 
partly in and partly out from what you are doing. We banish every form of evil, every spirit that kills, steals, and destroys. And we invite the life of God, the Spirit of God in its place to refresh us, to revive us, to restore us, removing confusion and fog and coming and meeting us in this place. Meet us here. Meet us here. We set apart this as holy space, a holy time with our peers. And we say we want you and your kingdom. And so we choose you on this night. We stay in anticipation and expectation of what you want to do. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So let's start with a film clip to give a little context for the weekend. You ever reach a point in your life where you say to yourself, this is the best I'm ever going to look, the best I'm ever going to feel, the best I'm ever going to do, and it ain't that great? Happy birthday. For Mitch Robbins, turning 39 wasn't the end of the world. It just felt like it. I'm losing hair where I want hair, and I'm getting hair where they shouldn't be here. I found four big fat ones on my back. I'm starting to look like the fly. He couldn't put his finger on what was missing. Show him the brochure. It's fantastic. But his friends could. Two weeks, the three of us, driving cattle. What, like in a truck? No, it's a real old-fashioned cattle drive. Go away with Ed. Take Phil. Go and find your smile. Welcome to the Stone Ranch. Believe it or not, that work you saw a while ago, y'all are going to be doing that the next two weeks. My answer is just watching this. What do you think? I think you look like one of the village people. I'll pay for that shirt, too. That is the toughest man I've ever seen in my life. Did you see how leathery he was? He was like a saddlebag with eyes. <laughs> Hi, Curly. Kill anyone today? They ain't over yet. Uh, I'm losing you. We're, we're going behind a butte. And Arnold... I got a special treat. We're going to make fresh coffee. Wow, something's spooking the cattle. <laughs> City folk. The scouts have a baby. Reach in and pull out the calf. You know, this was not in the brochure. This summer... <laughs> Billy Crystal. Look what I did. I made a cow. Daniel Stern. I lost my wife. I lost my job. And I've got some sort of rash for making in the bushes. And Bruno Kirby. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Oh, God. Hit the trail. Oh, super blasters. No, what? This. Your finger? Just one thing. What's the one thing? That's what you gotta figure out. Let's just leave the herd and get the hell out of here, huh? A cowboy Sometimes you have to get your feet wet to sit a little taller in the saddle. I'm 39. I'm saying moo cow in a river. Do you believe this? <laughs> Came out of your city slickers. You're going to go home, cowboys. It's fantastic. Fantastic. In some ways, it's that simple of um, you lost your smile. And so you got to go to get Colorado, get your smile back. 
If you could, if you could chase that emotion and go to the deeper level, the deeper level, the deeper level below the waterline, there's something really true in that, in that clip. Um, to, to give context for the weekend, Alex, if you can put the iceberg picture up there, um, Craig uses this at boot camp. Um, what's fascinating about an iceberg is 90% of it is below the surface and 10% is above. And so in the poser session, he talks about uh, behavior being what you see and motive being everything else. Um, you know, it's, it's so easy to get misled by above the waterline, um, especially a weekend like this. You're among world changers, and it's true. It's in your DNA. Um, so you, you kind of could get seduced into a false comparison of um, what's above the waterline, of what you do, what your story is. But the action is always below the waterline, okay? It's always the matters of the heart. Jesus is always going after the heart. And motive is the battleground of the heart. And our invitation for you this weekend is go below the waterline. Stay below the waterline. Live below the waterline. It'll, it'll be really helpful when you're interacting with men, even to think in terms of your own story and the story of other men. What's above the waterline, what's below the waterline. It'll really help us very quickly get to the heart, uh, our own heart, God's heart and the heart of the other men in the room. And I think what you'll find below the waterline, we have a lot more in common than what it often appears like um, above the waterline. And so even a a helpful question to get there is what's below that? What's below that? To chase that, go down, down, what's below that until you can get to the heart of the matter. Um, I think that'll help you navigate this weekend. Um, Just want to give a framework for why we're here and where this started, I think it was about 15 years ago. I became a believer in college in 1998 and then eventually came west and ended up in this college program after I graduated uh, where John was the professor and he laid out this gospel. And like many of you, it was wild at heart. It, it was the answer to the deep question in my heart. It was a gospel that was big enough to contain all of these desires I had in one central story um, and, and I remember going to his office, signing up, saying, I'm in, I, I, I'm in. And, uh, and it was such a beautiful interaction because he, he, he said, well, what are your questions? And I said, I, I, I don't know. And he said, that's okay. That's okay. And he said, discipleship is driven by the questions. So he said, come back to me when you have some questions. And that began the journey 15 years ago of, um, sitting under older men, asking questions where I thought I had answers. And I, I think for the first time in my life, gave myself permission to be young. It was always one of those, you know, driven, world changer guys, always a leader, always being promoted to something. And realizing all of it was out of a desperate search for validation. It was the first time I came into the presence of an of a intimate God and, a, and, and some good men that gave me permission to be my age. And so I began in 1998, an intentional season of training where I began to take a lower seat at the table and, um, and learn and, and, and try to um, undo the damage of what I had constructed of finding life in all the wrong places. And so fast forward, I hit 30 and uh, above the waterline, my life looked pretty good. I'm, I'm you know, part of core team at Ransom Heart and we're fighting for men and marriages. I have a beautiful wife. I have two um, healthy young children, and um, 
it looks pretty good above the waterline. But below the waterline, I hit 30 and I was pissed. I was just depressed. I was discouraged. And, and, um, and, and my mystery world wasn't all true, but what's below that? What's below that? What was deeper was frustration. You know, I'm growing hair where I don't want to be growing. I'm losing it everywhere else. Is this as good as it's going to get? And then the shame of my life's pretty darn good. Um, and I said, God, help me. I need your interpretation because I'm about to drive this thing into a cliff. So for two weeks, I sat before God and said, interpret my life. What is a man's story in his 30s? Why could it look so good for me? And yet I'm torn with this discouragement, depression, anger. Two years, there are two weeks, nothing. And finally, I, um, the father started speaking and he said, that's a great question. Find older men. Find men that you respect. Find men that you trust and ask them the questions. So that was six, seven, seven years ago. And um, it started this wild thing. I wrote a letter saying, I'm a mess. And I'm ashamed to admit that. I don't know what my life's supposed to be about. What are the pitfalls? What should I be worried about? What should I be hopeful about? Help me interpret my life. And I began receiving responses from these men. I'd have coffee with a guy or a meal or a walk or just a letter. And over seven years, it turned into 75 men um, that I got to sit with in all different forms. And it First, for about the first year, it was about every two weeks. It was so cool as I look back to see God answering my question. About every two weeks, I would sit in this nugget of just wisdom that was so good or a piece of a revelation of God's heart, and it was just healing something. And Aaron McHugh and I would get out on the bike or we'd get on a run and we'd start talking, and, you know, and, and he's in sales and um, software, and, and so he's in the marketplace, I'm in ministry, and we just pounded out talking this stuff out, going, man, okay, that's a different, that's a shift, that's a reorientation, that's disruptive, that string just started unraveling me, and I can't get it back together. And um, what happened from the council of these men were these themes, these themes start coming out of all types of men, and wealthy men, rich, wise, financial, and poor men, guys that have gained everything, guys that have lost everything, guys in ministry, guys in marketplace, um, all sorts of walks of life. But there were these themes that were universal. And then there were these nuggets from this man's story and this man's story. And finally, Aaron just said, hey, the guys I'm around are dying. You, you, you got to share this. You just have to share it. And so we got pizzas and beers one night and I kind of typed it out and just walked through this council. And as I walked through it, I'm, it was the first time we kind of put it all together and went, whoa, this is, this is awesome. And the room was like, we were all just like um, sons. We were all um, cared for by God. We were all coming home to something that was true, but it was a narrow road, something that our hearts knew and we had tasted. But you look around your peers in the secular world and in the Christian world, and that's not the road that you see people on. You know, um, that's not where my peers are, not my fraternity brothers from college, not a lot of people in ministry, and, and we felt pretty lonely in it. And then one of the questions posed by the older men um, is, look at the older men in your life in their 40s and 50s, and simply ask the question, what took them out? What took them out? And all of a sudden, we started looking at these guys going, whoa, they, they actually were just like us. 
they weren't much different when they were 32, 33, but their life's kind of a train wreck now in a lot of ways. So why, why will my life be any different at 50 if my life really isn't that different at 32? Obviously, I'm not on the narrow road as much as I thought I was. Um, and so, I, you know, I lived in a lot of scripture through it and, and camped in Jeremiah 6 when he says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. Your soul will find rest. And Peterson in the message, the same verse says, go stand at the crossroads and look around. Ask for directions. Give me directions to the old road, the tried and true road, and then take it. Discover the right road for your soul. Um, I want the narrow road. I think sometimes I'm on it. I think I'm on it in increasing measures, but still often I'm not. But sitting at the feet of older men um, was this conduit of God's heart that, that was even more intimate than just simply revelation because they spoke out of their pain. And as John says, don't waste your pain. Um, I've wasted a lot of my pain, but thankfully not as much as the older men in my life. I get to borrow from theirs and not waste my pain. So we started gathering this together. And, and finally, uh, and part of the, you know, the leader thing, it's part of my gifting and part of my deep false self. And so I, I walked away from all leadership and, and even to the point where I would sabotage it because I didn't want to self-promote because that was my old story and it worked all too well and it nearly destroyed me. And so I, I was pretty gun-shy from being on this side of a retreat. And finally, Aaron said, like, no, you got to. Like, it, like um, like guys need it. And, and I could feel some shift in my heart of some sobriety of like, wow, I, I don't really want to. And, and now it's because my motive isn't self-promotion. And I'm feeling more of the cost of walking with the team and John over all the 15 years. You see the cost of it, but Francis Schaeffer says, take the lowest seat at the table until God makes it impossible to do otherwise. It's a really good bearing point. Father, what is the lowest seat at the table? And, and where are the places that you're making it impossible to do otherwise? Be really helpful. And so he made it impossible not to ship this. And so we shipped it, wet clay. It's a sandbox. It was rough. Nothing's polished. Nothing was polished. We just put a date and put out invitations and Bart opened up his ranch and we pulled out chainsaws and we all cooked and we, we did some, some story groups and some sessions and winged everything and God did something. And so we did it again. And then, um, and then we thought, boy, if we could bring in some of these men that have spoken into my life and because I wanted that connection between the, the, the younger men and men that have walked the ancient road. And so if we could bring those guys in and connect them, wouldn't it be amazing? And now fast forward, this is the fourth year, um, we're here. And so not only are you among peers, but you are um, surrounded by guys that have taken the ancient road. Um, and and I, these facilitators among you, these guides, they're, they're the guys wearing the black vests, our staff and facilitators, so you can spot them. Uh, I've walked with a lot of them through these miles. And then I, I've asked the survey from the guys to just fill in some questions just so I could see some of those kind of bearing points. And I was flying through emails and it was like drinking cheap beer, drinking cheap beer and hitting single malt, malt scotch. When I got to the email that condensed, you know, put everyone's responses together. And I, I just stopped. I closed my computer and just was like wobbly at the, at the life lived 
the blood, the sweat, the tears, and to know these guys haven't given up. Um, and so I, I wrote down a summary of the types of things of these men so you know who's among you. They've suffered. Um, they've lost sons and daughters. They've lost them to death and death in this world. They've lost marriages to divorce and death and infidelity. They've built kingdoms and lost them, built fortunes and lost them, companies, careers, innocence. They've gone to prison, been forced to resign or resigned by choice, walked away from many fortunes, um, risked moving away from safety and control. They've battled countless bouts of depression, demons of all kind, addictions, drug, alcohol. They fought cancer. Several of them are still fighting it today. They've gone through bankruptcies and unemployment, losses of churches, abandoned by closest friends. Um, they've been through life-threatening accidents and suffer still permanent disabilities from them. Um, they've gone through seasons that we wouldn't wish on upon our worst enemies. And um, they've lost lifelong friendships and made them. They've lost their integrity and they've gotten it back. They've fought on the battlefronts of software, photography, um, accounting, law, pastorate, restaurant world, counselors, IT, horsemanship, real estate, and, and many more. And they're still standing. They have not lost heart. They have not quit asking questions. They have mentors. They're still looking for the narrow road more and more and more. Um, they're among the first that would tell you they don't have it figured out. So um, they have more than us, but not as much as some. They're in process and they're making their lives available to us. It's just pretty stunning. The caliber, the quality, authenticity of, of these men that we get to share this weekend with. Um, and they have open hearts. And, um, and the most beautiful thing is they're making themselves available to you. So throughout the weekend, we'll have these story groups that we'll, everyone will participate in. So you'll have some guys assigned to you. They were on your sheets. But uh, when the guys are around camp, they're here for you. Mealtime, free time, walking around campfires, beers, whatever God has, um, go for a walk. They are here to help be guides to um, hear your story to help you um, even discover what are, the, what are the questions behind the questions and to help you understand your bearing points and, um, and to receive what God has next for you. So please take advantage of it. Um, so what's the shift? What's, wh what is this decade thing? Because I don't want to name it too much above the waterline. I want to get to the heart of what it is. And I think the best way to start is, well, what do we come out of? In this decade of the young 20s, roughly, is really a decade of exploration and discovery. Those are great terms to put over it. It's a pretty narcissistic decade. Um, that's, that's not necessarily sin, okay? It, it, it's, some of it is, but most of it's immaturity. It's a decade about me. I'm the center of my story. Even if it's a really amazing story, that decade is is about me. And some of the visuals that God gave me when I got punted out of that decade, there were three that just got burned in my heart. And the first, um, young women carrying full-size pillows at the airport. Have, have you seen them? You might not have noticed them, but think about that, right? 
compared to the guy that has three car seats. How many of you guys are three car seat people at an airport? Any of you? God bless you guys. When, I, when, when we see you at the airport, you are a disaster. There's not a guy at the airport with three car seats that looks at all um, like he's going to make it to the gate, right? Like a full-size pillow? Who gets that, right? The, the, the second image um, that hit me after I got ejected out of this decade, protesters on TV. I realized they're all in their young 20s. Like, they have time to fight for a cause. We're just trying to change diapers and pay the bills, right? You think about that. Look at protesters. They're all young, right? They have all this energy and time for a cause. We're just trying to stay above water. And then the third that hit me, and I don't know why this was so deep, but um, when most of the pro athletes were younger than me, went, oh, man. Okay, I guess I'm never going to be a pro athlete. I mean, I didn't necessarily think I was, but it's just nice to have that in a bag of tricks as a possibility, and they're all young. And you hit these milestones, and you realize, whoa, something's changing. Something's adrift. And and I would name it this way. um, Your life matters to other people. That's the shift. That's the shift from exploration and discovery to this decade of, and we'll fill in the blank over the weekend, of uh, character over kingdom and excavation is your, mo- your life matters to others. And therefore, your choices have consequences that you begin to feel the weight of, okay? And you begin to make choices that inherently limit you out of other choices in a pretty sobering way. Um, it, it's a shift. Um, there was a, there's this old night commercial that I've tried so hard to find from the early 80s, and I can't find it, but this guy gets up Saturday morning and, and puts his running shoes on and gets out of his door, and he's just kind of running down the road, and behind him is this Kenyan guy, and he starts running faster, and then Jamaican guy. Before he knows it, there's like 100 guys running behind him, and he's just full on. Any of you guys remember this commercial? He's full on, full on, full on. He runs back to his house. He slams the door, and he's standing there, and, and you know, no one else made his house. And it's like, oh, that's the image where it's like, I was just going out for a run, you know, it's for a cup of coffee. And where did all these guys come from? I mean, one mentor, Matt, described it this way. He said, I felt like I found myself on, on a roller coaster that I never remembered getting in. And it was all I could do to just hold on. Life became reaction, right? It was a reaction. So, so um, that's the shift. Life starts mat- uh, your life matters to other people, margins shrink. And so you can live really sloppy in exploration and discovery, your sin, your addictions, your ways of medicating, your false self. But that, you can't get away with that in this decade. Margins shrink um, and exposure increases. And a lot of you um, being married, you know, it's the one place you can't hide. I mean, my wife's a yoga teacher and she's just amazing. She's beautiful. She shows up. She offers these amazing whimsical classes for 55 minutes and she's gone. And I mean, what else could you ask for? And, and I deal with all the other stuff at home, right? I, I get to come and lead a retreat and pray for women at work and fight for their hearts and, and spend myself in a worthy cause, like Teddy Roosevelt said. And then I come home exhausted, um, angry worn out, and I don't have margin to love my wife, they pay the price. The, the marriage is one place you can't hide, and that is a saving grace.
saving grace, okay? And so we hit the ground running, life is tight, our life matters to others, and we react. And it looks this way. I think of all the men and all the council, um, John named it this way, that I think is the great universal summary. We start building something um, in this way, three really core ideas. We, we make a little money, we make a name for ourselves, and we get something going. Just, just look at your life and look at your motives. When, when it gets tight and the roller coaster goes, make a little money, make a name for ourselves, or, or just get something going, right? Trying to appease that tension, the pressure, and we start building. And Dallas Willard has this remarkable quote that I think is the crux for all of this, where he says, um, the primary work of God is finding men in whom he can entrust his power. And this quote's in the back of your notebook. The story of most men is being entrusted with power and it bringing harm to themselves and those under their care. Think about that for a minute. The primary story of God is finding men in whom he can entrust his power. And the story of men, most men is being entrusted with power and it bringing harm to themselves and those under their care. It's like the fog just blows out of the room when I, when I meditate on that quote. And, I, and, you, and once you begin to believe that, you will see it every day. Um, I'll show some pictures. I mean, it's just a litany in the news of, of the people. Every, every several months, it's another powerful man um, bringing harm to himself and those under their care. I saw this billboard of Tiger years ago um, on I-25 near my house. And this was before it all came out of, of his sexual addictions and, and, and promiscuity. And, and I saw, what are you made of? And I saw him, and I remember driving by going, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's solid through and through. He's intact. Gosh, I want to be like that. And it was like a week later that, you know, he crashes in the middle of the night and his whole world comes down in that crash. Um, and just think of the cost of, of, of how many people put their hope in this man, in this hero, this athlete, of what the cost was. You can go to the next one, Alex. Um, Bernie Madoff, you know, a Wall Street guy, um, famous, infamous for the big Ponzi scheme. I mean, it was estimated that an entire generation, think about this, an entire generation of Jewish wealth on the globe evaporated overnight under his leadership. That's a lot of money. And, and think of what the... Think of what that does for the enemy just to come in in way of just cynicism for the Jewish people. Just think of, of where that went in the lost. Um, he was another big one. Joe Paterno, the winningest coach in the history of football. And what's so sad is, um, it, you know, it was a fall of passivity. And there's this, there's this quote Joe said in the, in the news in an interview. He said, um, I don't fish. I don't golf. I don't cut the lawn. Football is my life. And it's true. And it's sad that he got taken out because of it. Um, it's a pretty big story, um, but it's not big enough. He made it his story. And under his watch, in his passivity, and his unwillingness to fight and live in a larger story, uh, came great harm. He's taken out. He's literally, the, the death sentence was given to him. You're, you're out. You, I'm taking your life. And three days later, he gets diagnosed with lung cancer. And a couple months later, he's dead. Literally, he lost his life. And, and, and that's the legacy that so many people are left with. Um, the next one, 
General Petraeus, I mean, you guys know, the director of our CIA, 37 years of service in, in, in active theaters. I mean, this is a remarkable, decorated man. And then he ends up sleeping with his, his, the gal doing his biography. And you think, I would have too. Are you kidding? Like 37 years of fighting in our military and navigating all those battles. And then you have this beautiful woman that is paid to just listen to your heart and your stories and your pain and your dream. What, what would you do? That's crazy. But not having the larger story and knowing he set himself up, you know, for, for inevitable failure. And the, the reason why I want to point him out is he said, this is a good man. These are good men. Um, but they, they didn't, they weren't doing, they didn't do and continue to do the soul care to recognize the indicator lights that come up in me and in all of you. Um, and so at his finest hour, he gets taken out. And one of the hardest ones for me, frankly, is Lance, you know. Um, I mean, seven tours and hero. And I think what's sad is, you know, at first his battle against cancer, it was his story. But then 80 million people that have professed that they got hope from um, the, the enemy of cancer through him. 80 million. And, and to see, I mean, I, I watched the interview of him and Oprah for hours and hours kind of cutting through clips because it's an amazing study on the false self and the true self. And to think he even lied to his children. And um, I only see Lance with empathy and compassion because um, I understand it, how it's flowing out of a wounded heart. I mean, a fatherless boy that's driven for survival for him and his mom. And he said, I'm going to make it. I'm going to push. I'm going to fight. And his false self was always fed. It was just success, you know, success, success. And he loses all of it. And, and the story goes on. And these are public figures, but I just want to use them to point out, um, you know, this idea of God's primary work is to entrust us with power. And um, what I want to say is it is God's design. It is God's desire. And it's God's intention for us to become men of power. That the reason why we go build things is we were meant to, okay? Um, it's just gone a little sideways. Um, it's right in Genesis. One of my mentors, this is a really cool exercise for you to consider. Um, he said three months. He said, live in Genesis three months, Genesis one and two, before the fall. He said, it's really good to base your theology in God's world before it all fell apart. So he said, just spend your life once, once a day reading and meditating on what is the story before it all went to hell for three months. And it was amazing exercise. Really encourage you guys to do it. But in it, um, Genesis says, God said, let us make man in our image, in the image of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in our likeness, and let them rule, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the livestock goes on. So God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then it goes on and it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase, um, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all of it. The sea, the birds, the creatures, the land that's teeming with living things, rule all, all over it. So there's this amazing Genesis story of creation that it's just really meditate on it for three months. And then you get to this crescendo and God says, now that Adam is ruling, he says, it's good. It's very good. And, um, and then God rested 
simply to enjoy the work of his created world. Uh, we were meant to rule. Um, in in um, Waking the Dead, John, John has this great passage on it where he says, he talks about ruling and he says, it's like a foreman running a ranch or a skipper running a ship. Better still, it's like a king ruling a kingdom. God appoints us as governors of his domain. We are created to be kings and queens of the earth, small k. And the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter has looked long and hard at this passage, mining it for his riches. And he says the idea of rule means a fierce exercise of mastery. It's active, engaged, passionate, and fierce. We were meant to rule, okay? That desire is holy. Um, But in the crucible of this decade, it's gone wrong. And and if you trace that the whole way back, once you get into then Genesis 3 and 4, you see the fall. There, there was a compromise in the kingdom of God. There was a moment where Adam chose Eve over God, and his soul was compromised, and he moves from intimacy with God, union with God, ruling and subduing, offering and exercising the heart of God over creation to living in disconnection with God and living primarily out of shame and fear. So if you look at Adam from that point forward and look at me and look at you, the false self is constructed mainly out of shame and fear. And so we go about these desires to rule and to exercise fierce mastery, but they're not free. They're not in the service of love. And so we must yield our power to answer our question. Okay, we, we yield, we wield our power to answer our question rather than bringing a strength on behalf of others as an offering in love. Does that make sense? So at the core of creation, um, this is the shift. And what I want to do this weekend is to begin to recover. What's another way? What's the narrow road? Um, What would it look like? Rather than... Um, fighting bravely and dying quickly, um, what would it look like to get our hearts back, to become whole and holy men, to become solid through and through for more of us to belong to more of God? What I want to suggest is that the other way begins with some shift from making my life about building a kingdom um, to letting God build me. Rather than building my own kingdom, small k, um, whether that's motivated for God's kingdom or not, um, to make my, my focus, my attention, my energy being about God building my character over building my kingdom. Okay, um, and, and when I say character, I want to be really careful because we're not talking about morality and get your shit together and work harder. Um, it's not about that at all. Um, it's about becoming wholehearted. It's about receiving the promise of the gospel to become restored and set free, to become all that God meant when he meant us, to do the work of receiving his love in the form of healing and receiving the deliverance from the bondage and the generational warfare and the, this personal assignments 
the, the personal strategy of the enemy set since before your life to take you out? What if instead God was inviting you into a decade where he said, um, let's make this character over kingdom. Let me do the hard work, do the excavation, um, and eventually um, become really good soil. Um, Because here's what's amazing, is good men are magnets for the kingdom of God. See, if it's true that God's primary work is finding men to entrust his power, it makes sense in Second Chronicles when it says the Spirit moves to and fro all about the earth looking for people whose hearts are turned towards Him. God's waiting. I mean, as a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans, all of creation is waiting. The animals, the land, the people, the countries, the governments, the cities, all of creation is groaning with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. See, the implication is when the sons become the sons, since we are the sons of God, let us become the sons of God, McDonald says. When we become the sons of God, we become whole and intact, and we are revealed. All of creation applauses because all is well. All is well as it was intended to be. And so, there are pieces that won't come until all of Jesus' kingdom is back, but there's a lot we can bring, a lot we can get back, a lot more we can have than we've settled for. Chesterton had this great, um, there was a great deal in the newspaper about him. It was in 1910. It's a collection of essays. Um, and they asked a number of authors to write on the topic, what's wrong with the world? So Chesterton was one of the many um, people that wrote back to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And this was his letter. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) It's the best essay I've ever read. Um, What's wrong with the world? I am. And I don't say that with shame, self-reproach, false humility. I say I'm broken and I'm I need to be made whole again. I am under renovation. If you come to Choke Cherry and see the shingle in the spiritual realm over my house, it says under renovation. And it's not my house. It's me, okay? Um, 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 We are unfinished men, as John says. And the gospel comes to restore the whole man. And this weekend, um, I want to talk about what that looks like. Uh, I want to wrestle with these themes. I want to unearth questions. Um, in the letter I sent you guys before, I asked, what are your questions? I, I really mean that, and I don't even mean that as much for me because this weekend isn't about answers primarily. Uh, primarily, it's about surfacing the deepest questions of the heart and turning our hearts back to God to answer those over a time. Um, and, and so I want to go after that. Alex, if you could show that tree um, from Chokecherry, that Douglas fir standing, um, so I live in suburgatory with, you know, checkered houses. Everyone has a minivan, little fence, two and a half kids. Some of you probably know this world. But this one guy had two beautiful Douglas firs. And, uh, and, and we, because suburgatory is this grid of all these homes, um, what's, what's wild is somehow it's kind of protected from the winds. And so even though we live on the front range of the mountains, when you, when you guys drove here, 
we live right on, on like on that hillside. The winds don't make it down Chokecherry. And, uh, but one day, last year, this rogue wind came through and this tree came down. And Alex, you can show the next one. And what was amazing is I came up to this tree and it had no roots. It's unbelievable. It had, it had kind of a, a bit of a, a flat um, surface root structure, but a dug fir, what's amazing is it, it, it grows a taproot, a Douglas fir. And in the first three to five years, it will grow up to 50% of the taproot for its entire life. It goes deep until it finds a water source and then it spreads out. And this was the entire root structure. This tree was artificially protected. It was beautiful. And for a time, it worked, and then one wind took it out. I experienced the same thing um, my, when my brother was dying of brain cancer. I took him and tried to fish him around the world a couple places to fight for him. And we were in um, the flats in Florida, driving by Miami Vice kind of houses on these flats. And there were palm trees so big that were planted that they were using telephone pole structures, three of them, to hold these palm trees until the roots could catch up. They were, and the father just said, yep, propped up kingdoms, propped up kingdoms. There are many men around us that it appears good. And when I went through this council, you guys, and sat with older men, oh man, I just went, nope, not true, not true. There's an exception. There's a shortcut. There's a way in this category. No, you're making it too big of a case. And those three guys, they're an exception. Why do they get it to be an exception? And the months turned to years, and the years went by, and one guy at a time, I realized, no, there's no exceptions. Um, Propped up kingdoms last for a while until a storm comes. Just the right formula. This tree made it 23 years. Just the right formula, and then you get a rogue wind that has its number and took it out, and then it exposes the truth. Um, I want you to close your eyes for a minute and just picture a tree. Just, just picture the trees when you drove in, the um, pine trees or the aspens or a tree in your front yard, and um, picture its branches and what it looks like on the landscape and just see that tree for a minute. And Alex, if you can put up the first of the two um, intensive pictures, uh, for 32 years, this is what it was. This is kind of a sketch of an oak tree. When I pictured a tree, I saw this the same way and, and, until um, 12 years ago on my honeymoon when I pictured the ocean, it was the blue surface until I went snorkeling for the first time in my life and realized there's, there's a whole nother piece of reality that's always been there that I never was aware of. And um, this is how most people think of kingdoms and trees. But the reality is, if you look at the root structure, you can put that. Um, this is a more honest picture. It's a more true picture to the reality of, of what a tree is. Um, you just can't see a lot of it, right? It's what's unseen. It's faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And what I can tell you is over the last seven years, one of the biggest core shifts in me is I drive around, I run, I walk, and I look at trees. And I see all this. I've never seen a tree the same. Um, I know the story. And, and then I, I enjoy studying trees because 
trees all have different root structures, and it's fascinating to see how God made them to fit in certain geographies in a way that's just amazing. We were in the Redwood Forest um, at a boot camp, and these are the tallest trees in the world. And, and I thought, oh man, their roots must go 200 feet, you know, and I, I looked into it, and um, redwood trees have a root structure of approximately 6 to 12 feet. But they have an inner network where they weave with all the other redwoods. And so they have this interdependent relationship where they all support each other. And so they have a phenomenally wide structure that's interwoven with their brothers, and that's why they live for thousands of years. Um, the roots matter just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not true. And I don't want to be a statistic any more than I have to. I don't want to waste my pain any more than I have to. And I don't want that for you. I want to find the narrow road. I want to walk the narrow road. I want to find the ancient path that I didn't have to invent, that other men have walked in front of me. And um, I want us to become men that are powerful, um, that Men that are yielded, where we can actually um, be intact and not only become a man whom, whom God can entrust his power, but we can actually um, receive the kingdom that God has for us to lead, to receive that which he wants to entrust us with. Because so often guys uh, change the world and they change the wrong part. Remember, John said that at the first 30s retreat. They're sitting in Bart's living room. And he said, I want to change the world. But, you know, I really have a fear that I'm going to change the wrong part. Um, I don't want that to be our story. Um, so this weekend, um, in your notebook, I, I put some objectives. There's five objectives, and I just want to put those out there. And actually, I'll just take a minute, walk through this notebook. This is also wet clay and not complete because I, like you, am in my 30s and have little kids and change diapers and two car seats. And uh, But the risk is shipping it as it is and trusting that Jesus has some things for you. Um, so that just looking at the table of contents, basically what, what I have are um, a lot of questions. Um, I've just taken many of the questions that I've wrestled with over the last seven years and I've sat with God over and uh, put them all together um, because it's really a, a weekend of questions to introduce you to a decade of questions to let the questions drive the discipleship as God apprentices us in kingdom living. So uh, the first will be the objectives and then a couple of these visuals just for you and some of your times with God to consider. Um, and And then I gave an outline just to give a rough overview. We won't cover all of this, but we'll cover a chunk of it. And then there's line paper to write um, whatever you'd like. And then it goes into the big ideas. And again, these aren't all of them, but I tried in the spirit of um, lots of content to just capture some of those big ideas so you have them going out from here. And then there's other stuff in the reference section that we'll, we can talk about later. But um, on the objectives... The first, as we started the, the night, um, it's simply to exhale. Um, you, you, guys, you, guys are, you guys are living. You're living for it. You're going for it. That's why you're here. There's a, there's a thousand men um, that, that aren't here. 
Um, truly, when I said it's a miracle, I, I mean that with, with all my heart. And so this is a chance to exhale, okay? Um, you guys aren't on. You get to receive. You get to breathe. You get to um, to stand against a spirit of hurriedness and drivenness. And you get to go at a pace, um, as, as Jesus says in Matthew, um, to, to learn to live freely and lightly in these unforced rhythms of grace. Um, let me show you how to do it, Jesus says. Work with me and walk with me and I'll show you. Um, this weekend you get to do that. You get to step back 50 yards from the front lines. I encourage you to do that, to unplug. And you guys have emergency numbers. Um, call someone, tell them if they don't have that and then get off the grid for your sake, for my sake, for all of our sake. We don't want a spirit of distraction to come in. It's your time and you have a great excuse. If there's an emergency, we'll track you down, but um, get off the grid. Get away from, get 50 yards off the line. Let, let the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit minister to you. Bandage your wounds. Tend to some areas in you um, that have gone unattended to because life's crazy. Um, this is your chance. Receive that peace. The second is reorientation. Um, I, I really want and hope that God will challenge your worldview on the deepest levels regarding masculinity and particularly this decade. I mean, even just the idea of starting with shifting from building a kingdom to character over kingdom, um, that, that he will reorient some of your core, core um, categories. You know, Jesus so often will pull the string that unravels a person. He makes a mess and then he walks away. Um, he entices and he disrupts, as John said at boot camp, um, with questions and stories. So I hope that this weekend will be a weekend of questions, weekend of stories, a weekend of enticing and disrupting, that lots of strings will be pulled on, and we're not going to put little bows on it, um, but we're going we're to unearth some things. And, and so I share that because I want you guys to risk opening your heart to God, reorienting your core categories. Um, Jesus, I give you my core assumptions of where life is found and how to make it last. I mean, that's really it. That's, 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 the, that's the longing. I mean, that's where I, I love the gospel of John. I think of John as this old man. You know, most of his friends are gone. Most of them, his closest friends have been killed because of Jesus and Jesus is long gone, and he has to pen, like, what's, what's the story? How do I write Jesus' story? Like, I, I mean, I picture him with real hands, old hands. And, and he says, in him was life, and his life was the light of men. Um, that's the core answer. In him is life, and, life, and his life was the light of man. But I don't want to shortcut it to get there. I want the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to show us the masculine journey to understand what that means, and particularly for each of us. So I want to really go after these categories. Um, and third, encounter with God. I've sat under a lot of Dallas Willard's teaching, and one of the things I appreciate, he often says, is he says, you know, um, there, there are two of us, but in between us, is the kingdom of God actively working. And so there's a lot of content. I mean, I'm, you know, I've 
267 pages of notes because I've been adding to them every day for seven years. Um, There's content. But what we need is an encounter with God. Um, What we need is a revelation. Um, We need literally to experience the manifest presence of God, um, Jesus and his union with us and the Holy Spirit and and his wild way of guiding us and the Father and this amazing provision and protection and generous world that's available to us. We need a revelation of that because information won't ever change us, but revelation will. One of the wild prayers Sherry and I have been praying since January 1st, every day we've been praying to receive a revelation of God's affection for us. And that was like January 1st, that was all new. That was all frontier. Um, That's not necessarily how I would think of the Father. And now, whatever May May thirtieth, I'm like every day. I'm like Jesus, receive. I receive a revelation of your affection. Bring it today. Bring it today. And I'm just looking and waiting because every day it's come. And and I could have told you about God's nature and His attributes, um, but now I can tell you something different. I can describe intimate encounters every day because I've been asking for it. I, our prayers that you receive a revelation of the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, the inventory to raise and consider questions that will shape the next decade of your life. And I want to tie that to the last one. I think one of the things that um, you'll probably be disappointed at, disappointed at by the end of the weekend, and hopefully a year from now you'll really be grateful for, is this weekend is an invitation to a decade. And it's nothing more than that. Um, this isn't, this doesn't have bookends. And we need a decade of walking with God to go through the miles that I'm suggesting we take out of lives of men that have traveled decades and decades more than us and have communicated through their actions and their words and their life, it's available. And so what I want to suggest is something that's so radical in our culture to say, um, would you give a decade to this? And so that's that's a question I want to ask you um, to wrestle with because that's a sober question. And I'm not talking about above the waterline. You have to sort that out. I'm talking about below the waterline. W- would you give a decade to making it a priority in your motives for God to make you a whole, intact man, believing that it's his desire? It's his design, and it's his intention for you to become a man in whom he can entrust his power. And this portion of the kingdom that's been entrusted to you and no one else. Um, but it's a decade. Um, and so, so what are your questions? Um, and, that, and, and we're going to have a, a time with God tonight for 45 minutes just to kind of get the world off of us and get alone with God and, and, and kind of dial in. And I want to start with that of what are your questions? What are your questions um, in your core as a man? What are your questions about God and about your relationship with him? And you may need to start with some, some above the waterline questions of what the heck do I do with this career decision? And what about my four-year-old? And what about this diagnosis? Um, start there, but keep drilling down all weekend. Um, don't rush to an answer, okay? Um, 
Henry Nowen says, answers before questions do harm to the soul. I don't want to rush to an answer um, because the Father wants to bring it. That's why he made me sit for two weeks without hearing because he, he, he wanted me to feel the pain and the discomfort. And, and he, I think he wanted to actually see if I really was like, if I was really asking that question or if I was just trying to get a little comfort. I mean, that's the truth of, you look at most men, their 40s and 50s, we talked about it, um, are taken out. And the way I describe it in summary is most men um, by their late 40s pursue a life um, that maximizes security and safety and comfort. It maximizes security, safety, and comfort. And it requires that they not change. And then you extrapolate that over decades of security, safety, and comfort. And then you get to a point where you have an old man just set in his ways. It's one of the most um, painful phrases I've ever heard. He's just set in his ways. It's like one of the deepest agreements to say, um, I'm unwilling to change. It's not worth it. When, when I meet an old man with life in his eyes, um, that, that invigorates me. Um, because the truth is that we are supposed to, you know, being unveiling this glory in ever-increasing measure. I had a lunch with a gal um, it was 87 that her daughter drove her to meet me because she listened to the sonship talk. And, uh, and she, I mean, she was old and she was like, her eyes were lit up. And I can't tell you that I've seen someone that alive in a long time. She had a journal and on the front of it said dream. And she was like taking notes of things I was saying. And I'm like, who are you, woman? Like, like, what do you eat and drink? Like, I want that. Whatever nourishment's, whoa. But it was like popping my gaskets to see this woman. It's like, you know, getting yanked into this restaurant, like, or, you know, pulled in by her daughter. I don't want to maximize security and comfort and uh, safety. My false self does, my flesh does, but I don't want that life. I want to be yielded to God. I want to unearth the questions I want to raise them in me. And I want to be a son of God and to be revealed. Dallas Willard said that the most important thing about a man is not what he does, but it's who he becomes. If you enjoyed this and would like more podcasts and blogs and other resources to take this decade of excavation and go deeper, join us at Become goodsoil.com.